Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Is the Fed action today too little too late? The lead starts right now. The biggest interest rate hike in more than two decades. Why economists say the move should actually help us all in the United States and bring prices on everyday items down. As a brand new CNN poll tells us how you think President Biden is handling the economy and more. Plus, Russians blocked. Ukrainian forces managed to push back Kremlin fighters trying to storm the Mariupol steel plant while civilians pack caravans of cars some 10 people deep in an effort to escape. And... The new audio this hour of House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, how he actually discussed using the 25th Amendment to try to remove Donald Trump as president just days after the January 6th Capitol attack. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with breaking news in our money lead. Moments ago, the Dow Industrials closed up, up, up. By more than 900 points, the Nasdaq and S&P 500 also closed sharply higher. This comes on the heels of the Federal Reserve this afternoon, announcing the biggest increase in interest rates in 22 years. Amidst real fears of a recession, the Fed added a half point to its benchmark rate. You'll see the difference in higher interest payments on credit cards, car loans, mortgages, and more. This is an attempt to put the brakes on inflation by lowering consumer demand. Our brand new CNN poll shows the American people think the economy is by far the most important facing the United States. And they overwhelmingly think President Biden is doing a bad job with it. We'll have those numbers in a minute. But first, the president tried to get ahead of the rate hike announcement by touting his own administration's efforts to help the economy. We're on track to cut the federal deficit by another another $1.5 trillion by the end of this fiscal year. The biggest decline in a single year ever in American history. Looking ahead, I have a plan to reduce the deficit even more, which will help reduce inflationary pressures and lower everyone's costs for families. Let's start with CNN White House correspondent Arlette Sines. Uh, Arlette, despite all the worries about higher prices and product shortages, President Bob Biden is today pointing to successes he sees in his economic agenda. Yeah, Jake, President Biden really has been leaning into the idea of deficit reduction. One thing that the president is very cognizant of is that Americans are looking for action when it comes to things like the economy and inflation. So he is trying to point to progress that his administration has made since taking office, pointing to the fact that they have reduced the national deficit by $350 billion last year and that they are set to pay down the federal debt for the first time in six years. Of course, they are also playing to Senator Joe Manchin when they talk about deficit reduction. As Manchin has said, any future economic agenda would need to include uh, reduction in the deficit. So the president trying to ease some of the concerns of Americans uh, when it comes to the economy and inflation, but it's unclear whether he will be rewarded for deficit reduction as so much of the emphasis that Americans are placing are are on the prices that they see at the gas pump in the grocery stores heading into the midterms. 
Arlette, when the president was discussing the Republicans' economic agenda, to some critics, he might have sounded as though he was on the campaign trail. Tell us about that. Yeah, President Biden really was on the attack today, painting Republicans as extreme, not just on abortion, but also on their economic agenda. The president repeatedly referring to the Republican agenda as a MAGA agenda, something that is a uh, comment, a veiled comment towards former President Trump. And he took particular aim at a proposal presented by Senator Rick Scott, the head of the National uh, Senatorial Republican uh, Committee. Take a listen to what he had to say. Let me tell you about this ultra-MAGA agenda. It's extreme, as most MAGA things are. It will actually raise taxes on 75 million American families, over 95 percent of whom make less than $100,000 a year. So clearly, President Biden previewing some of the lines of attack that he's planning to launch heading into those midterms as he's making attacking Republicans and their agenda a main focus of his campaign themes. Arlette Signs at the White House for us. Thanks so much. That brings us to breaking news in the politics lead, a brand new CNN poll, gauging President Biden on the economy, his overall job performance, and much more. Let's get right to CNN political director David Chalian. David, two things sure stand out in this new poll. One, the economy, a top priority. And two, Americans disapprove of President Biden's handling of this more than ever before. Yeah, and those two things together uh, spell a tough political environment for Democrats, the president and his party. Take a look here. Most important issue, it's by far, Jake. 50% of people in this poll say the economy is the most important issue facing the country. Russia, Ukraine war at 14%, immigration at 10%, everything else in single digits. We should note this poll was completed just before that bombshell news from the Supreme Court on abortion. Biden's handling of that number one issue only at a 34% approval rating on the economy, 66% disapprove. And that number there, Jake, that's been going down since our poll earlier this year. He was at 37% approval on the economy. Now he's down to 34%. And in terms of Biden's policies, look at this. A majority of Americans in this poll, 55%, say Biden's policies have actually worsened economic conditions. 26% no effect. Only 19% of Americans in this poll say Biden's policies have improved conditions, Jake. And David, because of the economy, more Americans say they are buying less, according to the poll. Yeah, we talk about this all the time. The economy is how people feel it in their everyday lives. Look at this. 63% of respondents say they're buying fewer groceries. Same say they've cut non-essentials out of their lives. 55%, a majority, delaying purchases. 54% cutting back on driving. You can see how Americans, majority of Americans, have changed the way they operate day to day because of inflation. What about the president's overall job performance? Where does he stand there? Yeah, I mean... These economic numbers are keeping his approval rating where it's been, which is a low, uh, low 40s here, 41 percent approval in our poll, 59 percent disapproval. And Jake, look at how that 41 percent stacks up among his modern era predecessors at this point in their presidency. Joe Biden's down here at the bottom of the heap with Donald Trump and Jimmy Carter, two one term presidents, where his approval rating is right now. Uh, at this point in the presidency, Jake. Not a place you want to be. CNN political director David Chalian, thanks so much. Let's dig into the Federal Reserve's interest rate hike today. We're joined by Betsy Stevenson. She was a member of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. We also have with us former Reagan and Trump campaign advisor Arthur Laffer. Uh, Betsy, let me start with you. Uh, As we said, the half-point increase uh, in the interest rate, it's the biggest in 22 years. What kind of loans will be affected by the Fed's announcement today? 
Well, uh, the federal when the Fed raises uh, rates by half a point, right? That's affecting directly the interbank rate, but that's not what Americans care about. What they care about are car loans, mortgage loans, and we do see the Fed raising rates, percolating through all those kinds of loans. But I think it is worth noting that the market was already expecting this. We already saw some of that priced in. So I don't think we're going to see any big changes overnight. What we see is the Fed delivered what they promised, um, and we're already seeing things like mortgage rates have started to tick up to reflect where the market expects the Fed to be. And Arthur, there's a lot of concern that the Fed's interest interest rate hike will will push the economy into a recession. Do, Do you share those concerns? What might that look like? I don't really share the concern. I don't think the real problem is pushing the economy into the recession. I, I think these rate hikes are way too small. I mean, if you take me back, if you will, to 1981, uh, when we were running at inflation at 15, 16, 14 percent, Paul Volcker had raised rates to where the prime interest rate in the U.S. was at 21 and a half percent, about five points above uh, the inflation rate. We are nowhere near that. That's what it took back then, Jake to bring the inflation back down to where we're under Reagan. We had the tax cuts, supply increases, tight money, and we got inflation conquered. But that is not what this Fed is doing yet. I mean, they've got to go a lot further to bring inflation down. And then they would really risk a bad economy. But that's the only way I know of bringing inflation down. Betsy, the Fed also signaled uh, more interest rate increases will be coming soon, uh, as Arthur just suggested. Uh, Stocks closed sharply higher, but There has been a lot of turbulence in the markets lately. Some economists say, Betsy, that turbulence on Wall Street right now is a good thing. Do you agree with that? Well, to me, Jake, no, I don't. I don't think. Arthur, hold on one second. Arthur, hold on. Let's have Betsy and then you can weigh in right after. Go ahead, Betsy. Yeah. Um, I I don't think we have the economy of the the 1970s or, or 1980s. I think what the Fed said very clearly today, the most important thing they said, not that they are open to raising rates further. They are. But what they said is they're not going to let inflation expectations become unanchored. That's their bright line. We are getting inflation back to 2%. And they will do what it takes to make sure that our long-run inflation gets back to 2%. And I think right now what we see is the market believes that. Every once in a while, we see a little bit of nervousness. But as long as they continue to believe that the Fed's got this under control, that inflation expectations are going back to 2%, then I think uh, things are fine. In order, how much do they need to raise rates? I think that's going to depend on what we see happening in the next few months in the economy. I don't think that it's clear right now exactly how much they need to raise rates. What is clear is they will need to raise rates somewhat and that they're going to be doing that based on data uh, and the information that they get. Arthur? Yeah, sorry for blurting again. Uh, you know, I do think they're going to have to raise rates a lot more. There's no sign yet, Jake, that I can see that inflation has stopped or even leveled off. Now, the next three months, you're going to see the inflation rate leveling off because they're dropping off low numbers 12 months ago. But once that's over, in the three months leading up to the election, those rates that are being dropped off are going to be very low and you're going to see an initial surge. Plus, Jake, the, the producer price index is about over 11% which is the preceding stage of the consumer price index, which means that it's being pulled higher and higher and higher. Spot commodity prices are rising dramatically. So I don't see any reason to expect inflation to stop or go down. Like Betsy says, I just don't see it. Uh, And it might even go a lot higher. And if it does, this will 
this will be a really a pivotal point for the Fed in trying to bring it under control. All right. To be to be continued. Arthur Laffer, Betsy Stevenson, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Coming up, intense battles rock the Mariupol steel plant with civilians still stuck inside. And now officials say they've lost contact with the Ukrainian fighters inside. Plus, the galvanizing issue of abortion in America ahead. I'm going to talk to a mayor refusing to stand by and wait for the draft Supreme Court decision to become law of the land. Stay with us. In our world lead, new battles erupting at the besieged steel plant in Mariupol today. Ukraine's foreign minister says Ukrainian forces are still in control of the Azovstal steel plant despite relentless Russian attacks today. The city's mayor says hundreds of civilians remain trapped inside, including 30 children, along with the last Ukrainian defenders in the city. Elsewhere in Mariupol, a new investigation by the Associated Press finds evidence that 600 civilians, 600 were killed in the Russian attack on the theater there where civilians were sheltering. That is much higher than earlier estimates. Painted on the ground outside that building, as you might recall, in giant Russian letters was the word children. Twice. Despite intensified attacks in Ukraine's east, the Ukrainian military says Russian forces are largely stalled in that region and have made few advances toward their goal of securing all of the Luhansk and Donetsk regions. Today, The head of the European Union unveiled further measures aimed at punishing Putin, including a ban on Russian oil and removing Russia's largest bank from the system that connects financial institutions around the world. In southern Ukraine, civilians are finally able to escape Kherson, the first city occupied by the Russians, when the invasion began. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh caught up with some of the evacuees on their road to safety. Their road to salvation here is a dusty track where few know the route and just follow the car in front. Above the trees, the dust likely from fires caused by distant shelling. These are over a hundred cars that have run the gauntlet out of Kherson, the first city Russia occupied. No school, no almost hospital. At the moment it's terrible. There's so many Russians, military there. What do they do? They, uh, at the moment, they do nothing. Eyes here, tell of exhaustion, hours held at Russian checkpoints. The only emotion left after two months under the Russian gun, a slight smile of freedom. The idea dawning that life under occupation is behind them, even if a life displaced by war is ahead. You can see just in the length of this queue here, the scale of the desperation that we're talking about here. People fleeing Russian occupation, leaving this morning at first lights from the city of Kherson, the first to be occupied by Russia at the start of the war, some of them on their fifth attempt to get out. Something this time was different. It was easy. We left early and they were all asleep, she says. Goods have dried up. Everything is from Crimea, she adds. Edik in front squeezed ten in here. Saying here is good. We were just on the way to get out and they let us pass as human shields when things were flying over us, she says. It was terrifying. Five attempts, Edik said. 
They didn't let us through, just turned us around. They fled a city where things were not going according to the Kremlin's plan. The sham referendum Russia planned to consolidate control never happened. And this weekend, almost at the moment when they introduced the Russian currency, the ruble, the internet and cell service suddenly went off. For even the youngest, the hope ahead is palpable. It was sad to leave, he says, but where we're going will be better. This is happening as villages and roads change hands daily here. These Ukrainian soldiers in the next village anxious to not have their location or faces shown. We evacuated 1,500 people over the last week, one said. Kids, elderly. Russians let them through if they say they're going to Kherson. Further on, they drop off their cars, bikes and go on foot to our side. Across the fields... The agony of Russia's blundering and senseless invasion pours out. Now, of course, seeing out of Kherson these intermittent, at times, enormous convoys is part of the huge flow of civilians around Ukraine. Remember also, too, those emerging out of Mariupol as of style. The Russian government, for what it's worth, its Ministry of Defence, have said that tomorrow, the day after and the day after that, there will be another window for civilians to get out of that besieged steel plant, where, as you mentioned earlier, Ukraine is now saying that the Russians are not having success, but it does appear a heavy onslaught has begun by the Russian military. Whether that will indeed cease over the days ahead to allow civilians out. Russia says it acts by humane principles. Almost absurd, frankly, given the damage it's done to nearly every civilian area of Mariupol. But hopes, I think, diminishing slowly given the ferocity uh, of Russia's onslaught today and the loss of communications experienced uh, at one point during today with those inside. Jake? Nick Payton Walsh doing uh, incredible reporting there for us in Ukraine. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Oksana Makarova, she's a Ukrainian ambassador to the United States. Madam Ambassador, thanks for joining us. What can you tell me about the conversations you're having right now with top U.S. officials about what Ukraine needs? Well, thank you very much, Jake, and to your colleagues for being in Ukraine and and showing us what really happens on the ground. Um, All I can say is that we are really grateful for the support we have received to date, this $3 billion and all the military support and financial support, as well as sanctions. And we look forward to Congress adopting the new proposal for $33 billion, uh, which includes also the military support, which is uh, uh, something that we really need in order not only to sustain the effort, but to prevent Russians from occupying or advancing because we know what happens on those occupied territories and the terrifying situation in Kherson, which you just uh, shown, and in Mariupol and other places, as well as situation, you know, situation in the areas which we have liberated, Bucha, Borodyanka, and others, clearly show us that the faster we uh, advance, the faster we defend our territory, the faster Russians actually are out, the faster, the more lives we can save. Mm-hmm. So I can only repeat what President Biden said. You know, every dollar spent on this is a direct investment into defense of democracy and freedom. And we are really grateful to American people for this. Well, let let me ask you about that, because I'm starting to see skepticism 
uh, on social media and skepticism expressed by uh, members of the public, the American public, saying $33 billion for Ukraine. Why should we be spending $33 billion for Ukraine? What's, what's your, I, I understand the gratitude you feel, and I certainly understand uh, why you need the money, but what is your message to Americans who might wonder uh, about why their taxpayer dollars are going to Ukraine? Well, it's not only about Ukraine, it's about all of us. Can we still be a democracy, all of us, and not be threatened by Russia? Uh, which essentially on the Russian TV, if you look at it now, it's of course about Ukraine and destroying Ukraine. But they are also showing how they will be shooting at pretty much everyone and how they want to change the world order and how they, uh, you know, uh, being an autocracy, uh, bragging about essentially destroying the way of living we defend now in Ukraine. So it's, of course, our homes and our lives that we are defending, but essentially we are also defending Europe and defending everyone who believes in freedom, uh, who believes in democracy. And I just want to remind in 1994, when Ukraine, as one of uh, the, the, actually the only country that decided to get rid of uh, the third nuclear arsenal, become a peaceful country in exchange for the guarantees, uh, of of other countries, including the United States. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very important message to, to send that you can still do it and feel protected and feel helped, you know, being helped like the U.S. is helping us. Right. So the, we feel enormous support from American people. The European Union proposed a ban on Russian oil today. To, to be clear, this is not the same as a ban on Russian gas, which many European countries still say they can't do without. I, I wonder how much of a difference this would make uh, when we know Europe is paying Putin hundreds of millions of dollars per day for energy. Sanctions are as important as the military support to Ukraine. And again, we can praise the United States to being a leader here in sanctions on energy resources. And we believe that everything, every energy resource should be banned, as well as all Russian banks should be added to the full blocking sanctions list. So sanctions are important to punish Russia for, the, for what they already done. But they are equally important for actually not allowing them to continue to finance this uh, attacks, this war. Again, I want to remind, not only on Ukraine, because we have to remember about Syria. We have to remember about Georgia. We have to remember about poisoning in, in, uh, in, in the streets of London. And also remember about the MH17, which was shut down yeah. from the skies by Russians. Absolutely. Ambassador Oksana Markarova, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Up until now, Putin has called his deadly invasion of Ukraine a, quote, special military operation. Coming up next, the Kremlin's response today when asked if Putin will formally declare war on an upcoming symbolic day for Russia. Stay with us. Back in our world lead, the Kremlin is rejecting claims that Vladimir Putin may officially declare war on Ukraine on May 9th. May 9th, of course, the anniversary of the Soviet Union's defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945. And a day Western officials believe Putin might use to either announce a military achievement or a ma major escalation or both. CNN's Matthew Chance is live for us in Moscow, where the Kremlin imposed strict laws regarding how Russia's presence in Ukraine is allowed to be described. Matthew, what is the Kremlin spokesperson saying about these May 9th reports? Um, well, the Kremlin are rejecting it. They're, they're saying, look, this idea that Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, is going to use May the 9th and the Victory Day parade as an opportunity to uh, formally 
declare a war on Ukraine. They're saying that's nonsense. The idea that uh, Russia is going to announce some sort of mobilization, which a formal declaration of war would do, of forces so they can bring more troops to bear uh, on the conflict in uh, neighboring Ukraine. They've ruled that out too. But, you know, Jake, I think we've all learned over the past couple of months more than ever that we have to sort of you know, judge Russia on its actions rather than what it actually says it's going to do. Remember, it said it wasn't going to send its troops into Ukraine and, and, and look where we are now. And so we'll be watching that Victory Day parade on May the 9th in Moscow very closely indeed. It will be an opportunity for the Russians uh, to show off their military swagger. Their latest military hardware will be wheeled out once again. Their intercontinental ballistic missiles as well, particularly potent given the nuclear threats that the Kremlin has been making over the past uh, couple of months with regard to the West and with regard to Ukraine. Also, it's an opportunity for Vladimir Putin uh, to make uh, a speech. He'll be doing that. He usually limits it to sort of commemorating uh, the, you know, the victory day, the, the, the defeat of Nazi Germany by the Soviet troops. But he could speak about what Russians call their special military operation uh, on this occasion. All right, Matthew Chance in Moscow, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, a U.S. mayor's call to action after the Supreme Court's stunning draft decision that indicates they may be poised to strike down Roe v. Wade. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the stunning leak of a Supreme Court draft opinion that would theoretically undermine the current constitutional right to an abortion is having a, a seismic impact across the country. Thousands of demonstrators gathered across the United States last night, making their voices heard after the revelation that the nation's highest court appears poised to overturn the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade case, which granted abortion access nationwide. And joining us now to discuss is the mayor of Phoenix, Arizona, Kate Gallego. Thank you so much for joining us, Madam Mayor. You signed on to an open letter released today from other women mayors condemning this, what we think will be a decision, or at least a suggestion of what the decision will be from the Supreme Court. The letter reads in part, quote, as experts on our communities, we state unequivocally that access to abortion care is essential health care and a fundamental right necessary to ensure freedom, autonomy, and equity for everyone who can get pregnant. As we saw in a lot of cities, hundreds of protesters demonstrated outside the Phoenix Capitol uh, last night. What, what impact do you think overturning Roe v. Wade would have on Phoenix. I am very worried about what it means for my community, particularly for women who don't have access to the health care they need already. This will be hardest for our lowest income women. But I think most women my age have had a conversation with a friend that starts, there's something I have to tell you, and you learn about an unintended pregnancy. Those are hard, hard conversations. And to have fewer and fewer options, particularly locally, could be devastating for women. Arizona is one of the states that will likely have an outright abortion ban. Well, let's talk about that because the governor, Republican Doug Ducey, signed a bill in law, into law in March, that would act as a near total ban on abortions uh, after 15 weeks. He previously has indicated that he might revisit the issue if Roe is overturned, which it looks like it will be by the Supreme Court. Um, can you do anything on the local level or Ducey does this and the legislature goes along or vice versa? And that's where Phoenix is. So Arizona also has a pre-Roe abortion ban on the books. So this is a total very, ban, a total ban. Mm -hmm. So these are really devastating times for a woman my age. Roe has been settled law. And to think that it is so, so at risk is, is a really scary time. We're, I think, going to see a lot of organizing around it. I find that 
younger women weren't really particularly paying attention this election cycle, and now we're already seeing on campuses and in the community a huge upswell. But we're also hearing from women who remember what it was like when abortion was illegal and who are galvanized and ready to do everything we can to not return to those days. Well, let's talk about that. Practically speaking, what will this mean? You say you're very concerned. What do you think a post-Roe Arizona, post-Roe Phoenix would look like? We already had very high-stakes elections, but this is going to change it dramatically. I think we'll see many more people in our community, but particularly women, getting engaged and organizing around the election. We have races such as the governor's race that are on the ballot, and I think we'll see a lot more interest there. State legislative races will become incredibly important. So first, I think thing we will see is action in November. Okay, you're not going to give me the worst-case scenario because you're just focused on the election. The city of Phoenix is a pro-choice council, and I think we will look at what our options are. We want to make sure women have access to all of the health care in our community. We don't want people to have to go to California. Many of the people who need it most will not be able to do so. Uh, let's turn to another important issue in your state, the growing crisis on the southern border. A uh, federal judge has temporary, temporarily blocked the Biden administration from ending the pandemic-era Trump uh, restrictions, border restrictions known as Title 42, which allowed for uh, quicker um, removal uh, of migrants from the United States because of uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, do you want to see Title 42 remain in place? Do you want to see uh, this, the country still be able to remove people who are in this country illegally quickly? So to me, what we really need is Congress to pass comprehensive immigration reform. And maybe there's political will that wasn't there before. Our labor market is incredibly tight right now. We need people to build homes in our community, to operate so many of the advanced jobs that are coming to our community. And perhaps there's finally the will to do something on comprehensive immigration reform. But if not, we really need support. We are a welcoming community. We are built by people who have moved to Phoenix as America's fastest growing city. The overwhelming majority of the people in my community have roots somewhere mm. else. And, and refugees have been amazing for our community. We have a beautiful police station. But do you want Title 42 to stay so that the uh, immigration can take migrants out more quickly or, or not? So it's been questionable as a, health plan, as a healthcare tool. It is not how I would like to see us regulate immigration, but we do need more of a plan in place to be ready. And we need local government to have an understanding of what is coming so we can prepare. All right. Mayor Kate Gallego, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Coming up next, new audio revealing more of what House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy really thought about then-President Trump's actions in the day after January 6th. And his hopes at the time to work well with the incoming president, Joe Biden. Stay with us. We have some breaking news for you on our politics lead now. Brand new recordings being revealed for the very first time of Republican House leader Kevin McCarthy denouncing then-President Trump in some of the harshest language we have heard from McCarthy yet. The audio comes from just two days after the January 6th Capitol insurrection during a House Republican leadership call in which McCarthy called the president's actions, quote, atrocious and totally wrong, unquote, and expressed his desire to ensure a smooth transition to the Biden administration. The audio was obtained by New York Times national political correspondents Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns. Take a listen. Yeah, look, what the president did is atrocious and totally wrong. Um, from the standpoint, you're 12 days away. I mean, the one point I'd make with Biden... If you have an impeachment and you're stuck sitting in the Senate, 
and he needs cabinet members. He's got Secretary of Defense. He's got a lot of things that he's got to have moving. And when you think from a perspective, you put everything else away. This country is very, very divided. I do think the impeachment divides the nation further and continues to divide even greater. Um, that's why I want to reach out to Biden. I wanted the president to meet with Biden, but that's not going to happen. I want to see about us meeting with Biden, sitting down, make a smooth transition to show that and continue to keep those statements going. Um, so hopefully, I know he's going to talk to Pelosi, but he's going to, hopefully he calls me today. Um, and see if we can start that process. Hopefully he calls me today and we can see if we can start that process. Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns joins us now. They're the authors, as if I need to say this again, authors of the brand new book, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future, which was just published yesterday. Jonathan, take us through what's happening in this meeting and the context around McCarthy's comments. So in this moment, McCarthy is trying uh, desperately to connect with the incoming president, Joe Biden. McCarthy is sort of panicked about the, the prospect of more political violence in the country. And he's grappling with what to do about President Trump and how to hold him accountable and minimize the political risk that he thinks President Trump now presents to him and his party. And we chronicle in this book uh, from this moment really forward how Kevin McCarthy got from that hard line that you just heard atrocious and totally wrong, he calls Donald Trump, to by the end of the month, Jake, being back at Mar-a-Lago with the former president. Yeah, and Alex, you have another recording where an aide on the call details how the 25th Amendment to the Constitution works for those who somehow have made it to this moment without learning this. That's the amendment for two-thirds of the cabinet to remove a president perceived as being incapacitated. Uh, it's, it's been brought up throughout the Trump presidency. Um, we hear McCarthy discuss this and dismiss it as a possibility, but it's interesting as to why he dismisses it. Let's take a listen. I think the options that have been cited by the Democrats so far are the 25th Amendment, which um, is not exactly an elegant solution here. That takes too long, too. It could go back to the House. That takes too long. The audio shows the 25th Amendment was under serious consideration, Alex. That's right. You know, this is something that we've reported uh, from a couple top Republicans in the book, that the 25th Amendment was sincerely and seriously in play at this point. And a whole lot of Republicans like to sort of hand wave that, you know, well, people like to speculate uh, about the 25th. Jake, this was a whole lot more uh, than speculation, uh, as your viewers just heard. And you don't hear Kevin McCarthy saying in that moment you know, I don't think it would be appropriate to invoke the 25th Amendment, or I'm not sure that it was designed uh, for a situation like this. His concern is it would take too long. And the reason why he's worried it could take too long is that the cabinet can vote to remove the president, but then the president can challenge that, and then it goes to a vote uh, of the Congress. And then you're in a situation that's really not uh, all that different from impeachment. And again, to bring folks back to this extremely urgent moment, two days after January 6th, 12 days left on the clock uh, of President Trump's administration, you have the top Republicans in the country truly worried about whether it's responsible to let Donald Trump remain as the president and commander in chief for just 12 more days. Yeah, no. And, and Jonathan, I mean, it's incredible when you think about Kevin McCarthy's issue with the 25th Amendment is it wouldn't get rid of Trump quickly enough. And so you also write about Trump's response 
uh, to McCarthy's condemnations of him in the immediate aftermath of the insurrection, quote, Trump waved aside McCarthy's claims of challenging the former president in private. According to Trump, the Republican leader's tough talk after January 6th was just that talk. So, so Trump is completely unconcerned about what McCarthy was saying during this time. And not just that, when we pressed President Trump in our interview with him for this book about what Kevin McCarthy had said to him, Trump said, McCarthy never pressed me to think about resigning or to even issue any kind of contrition. And so we asked Trump, we said, so why is McCarthy claiming that he was a tough guy with you? And Trump said to us two words, inferiority complex. Wow. Speaking of Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. And and Alex, um, we should note President Trump uh, certainly had a good night last night uh, with the Republican Senate primary results in Ohio. His handpicked candidate, J.D. Vance, who was trailing in the polls before Trump picked him, won. Uh, In the book, he described how a lot of Republicans have been dismayed at Trump's continued strength within the party, including uh, Mitch McConnell. That's right. Mitch McConnell, in in so many ways, exhibit A uh, of Republicans who wish Trump would just uh, fade away and 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 finds now that's not the case at all. If Republicans take back the Senate majority this year, Jake, there's a very, very strong chance that the margin of control for Mitch McConnell will be candidates handpicked by Donald Trump. And as Kevin McCarthy has found uh, in recent weeks after the reporting from this book uh, became public, <laughs> the, the long arm of Donald Trump is very long uh, indeed. And, you know, those, those endorsements, that support, that indulgence from the former president does not come for free. All right. The book, of course, from Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns. This will not pass. Trump, Biden and the battle for America's future. It's a great read. Check it out. Thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Thanks, Jake. Coming up, showstopper. What reps for Dave Chappelle are saying today after an armed man rushed the comedian on stage. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, stage fright. In Hollywood, comedian Dave Chappelle is physically attacked while performing what we know about the suspect is coming up. Plus, J.D. Vance wins the Republican Senate primary in Ohio. Does this mean Donald Trump's crown as kingmaker of the GOP is restored? And leading this hour, internal pushback on the European Union's proposed ban of Russian oil imports. The ban would be part of the expanding effort to punish Russia for its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, this while the fighting in Ukraine intensifies. In Mariupol, the city's mayor claims hundreds of innocent civilians, including 30 children, remain trapped inside that steel plant while Russia forces, Russian forces bombard the area. Elsewhere in Mariupol, a new investigation by the Associated Press finds evidence that 600 civilians were killed in that Russian attack on the theater where civilians had been sheltering that is much higher than earlier estimates. Painted on the ground outside the building, of course, as you might remember, in giant Russian letters, was the word children. It was written there twice. The bombs came anyway. CNN senior national correspondent Sarah Seidner joins us now live from Kiev. And Sarah, today the uh, the mayor of Mariupol said contact has been lost with the Ukrainian forces fighting from inside the Azovstal steel plant. Tell us what we know. Look, Russia continues to bombard the place. Uh, We are hearing from a Ukrainian commander that indeed the soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers inside of that plant say that the Russian soldiers have made it inside the plant and there are bloody battles that are occurring. 
This is, as you just mentioned, the mayor says there are still hundreds of people that are sheltering inside of the dark, dank maze uh, of the underground bunkers that are below that Azovstal steel plant. They're still there, including dozens of children. And still, Ukraine's foreign minister, though, says despite Russia's claim that it now has a complete control of Mariupol, uh, the Ukrainian soldiers, according to the foreign minister, are still holding their ground, holding their space in and around uh, that steel plant. Uh, the Russians did ramp up their attacks after more than 100 people actually were able to be taken from that plant after months in these very, very dif difficult conditions. Mothers and children, um, older folks who have been hiding there for such a long time in complete darkness. We're starting to hear some of the stories of what it was like uh, to be in there as families were terrified for their lives, hearing the strikes hitting again and again over their heads. Jake. And Sarah, the Ukrainian military says Russian forces are largely stalled in eastern Ukraine. What might that mean for the people in those regions? Look, it'll give them a break from bombardments, if you will. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, they can't go about doing their daily routines, of course. Um, and there are places where water is very scarce because of a broken pipeline. Uh, so there are a lot of issues going on, not just uh, with this war, but with regular everyday life. Um, you can imagine, though, you don't know if it's because uh, the Ukrainians are pushing them back or if the Russians are regrouping. That's something that you can't tell. But certainly there's been fierce fighting and the Ukrainians have, Ukrainians have continually surprised the world with how well they have been able to repel uh, some of these Russian advances into pushing them back a bit. But yeah, I mean, daily life uh, interrupted. And when there's a break from that, you know, people try to come out um, and do something that is a little bit normal. Jake? Sarah Seidner reporting live for us from Kiev. Thank you so much. Earlier this week, we reported on the fate of a small village just north of Kiev, which was heavily damaged in the battle for the capital. CNN's Matt Rivers spoke to Ukrainian soldiers who not only survived that bloody firefight, but helped turn the tide in Ukraine's favor. Here is part two of that report. Outgoing fire from a frozen foxhole. Not far from the flaming pieces of an exploding armored vehicle. As the quiet still of a nighttime bunker is shattered by what the soldier says was a direct hit right nearby. This is what happened in the tiny town of Moshun, just northwest of Ukraine's capital city. It was here, as much as anywhere else, that the Battle of Kyiv was won. By early March, Russian forces had flooded south, Ukraine's seat of power in its sights. They'd arrived just west of Moshun, occupying that entire area, the Irpine River, the only thing between them and the town where Ukraine would make its stand. Is it strange to just walk through this area now, you know, where, when it's safe? He says what's strange was being here when all hell broke loose. Three Ukrainian soldiers who fought here took us around Moshun. Before the ground assault, they said relentless artillery rained down. There was little they could do but wait it out. Just listen to this video taken by a soldier. So they dug this trench here just across the river from Russian positions, of course, to take cover from things like this. So this would be spent ordnance, a rocket fired from a Russian attack helicopter here on the Ukrainian position. 
Thinking they'd soften the town, the Russians decided it was time to strike. With this bridge destroyed, they built a pontoon bridge here and started sending special forces troops across the river. Across the river, the Ukrainians waited, some seen here, ready to fight back. Street battles raged, homes were shredded, houses now with so many bullet holes, like freckles on a face. The Russians, some seen here, actually took part of the town, but that success would be short-lived, because the woods were up next. Moshun is surrounded by dense pine forest, the perfect area for Ukraine to stop and advance. Video shows Ukrainian troops lined up in neatly dug positions, and Russian troops would quickly come under heavy fire. Video shows the results, multiple dead Russian soldiers in the snow. That body was found right there, and there were several other Russian soldiers that were killed right in this area, including this soldier, whose body armor is still left behind. This was not artillery unit versus artillery unit. Here in these woods in this town, it was infantry versus infantry, close proximity fighting. As sounds of explosions ripple around them, Ukrainian soldiers race toward an unseen enemy, carrying between them what is likely the kind of weapon that could do something like this. Ukrainian drones capture the destruction of Russian armor, sitting ducks on the lone road through the trees. And here on the ground, you can still see the remnants of two destroyed armored personnel carriers. The body parts of the soldiers that were inside still litter this area. Ukrainian forces say some 500 Russian soldiers and 40 armored vehicles made their way into this part of the forest. And if they were able to continue and get through, it could have changed the tide of the entire war. Moshun sits only about three miles from Kyiv's city limits and roughly 15 from the city center. Ukrainian troops tell us had the Russians broke through, the thousands of Russian troops just across the river would have made an all-out push into Kyiv. But a fierce Ukrainian counterattack turned the battle around quickly, with soldiers going house to house, retaking the town, even destroying the pontoon bridge Russia had used to bring soldiers across. Ukrainian forces also stripping what they could from the better-supplied Russian soldiers. He says they suffered heavy losses here, even though they dominated us in aircraft and drones and 10 to 1 in artillery. For these three soldiers, the victory in the Battle of Kyiv is something the world should have seen coming. Should the rest of the world have been surprised? Uh, Our army turned out to be one of the best in the world, and nobody was more surprised than the Russians, he said, adding one more thing in English. And Jake, just one day after speaking to those soldiers, we found out that all three of them shipped out to join the fighting in the East. A clear reminder that this war goes on. Jake. Matt Rivers in Ukraine, thank you so much. Joining us now live to discuss, uh, Rula Jibril, a former, she's a foreign policy expert visiting professor at the University of Miami, and she recently testified to the European Parliament on the threat of Russian propaganda. She's due to testify again on Monday. Uh, Rula, good to see you again. So the EU Commission says it will ban three Russian state broadcasters from European airwaves because of the propaganda, the lies they tell. Um, how big is the European audience for Russian propaganda these days? It's huge, Jake. They can ban all the networks. But what we're seeing that what you're listening, what you're hearing on Russian state television 
They are basically, Putin is exporting his dictatorship with weapons, with bombs and propaganda. So you're seeing all kind of propagandists, Russian propagandists, including Lavros, the foreign minister, speaking directly to European audience on prime time every night, every day. And then their message is amplified on social media. And they're pushing the narrative that this is a war against Nazis. They're calling President Zelensky, he's basically, he said last week that Zelensky Jewishness is not an impediment of him being a Nazi. He's even claiming that most Jews are the worst anti-Semites. And, and this is on national television. This is on a network that used to be, in, that is owned by um, Putin puppet Berlusconi, mm. who was riddled with scandals, who did all kind of uh, business deal with Putin, his main network that's followed by millions of people is spewing that kind of propaganda. And other networks, they're inviting every night those Russian propagandists. I think it's time for the European Union to start taking this seriously, because for the first time since the beginning of the war, we're seeing millions of Italians who on social media write that we don't want to be slaves of NATO. We don't want to fight an American war. We don't want to alienate Russia. So they are exploiting their fear and prejudice to sabotage democracy and to sabotage NATO and the effort, the new renewed unity of NATO. That's fascinating. And, and this week, uh, as you know, the Russian foreign ministry, uh, the, the foreign minister, uh, Sergei Lavrov, said this insanely anti-Semitic thing about, you know, Adolf Hitler having Jewish blood, claiming Jews are the most are the worst anti-Semite. The ministry uh, doubled down after the government of Israel um, uh, protested. Uh, saying that Israel supports the neo-Nazi regime uh, in Kiev and, and going so far as to, to say, again, it's a lie. Israeli mercenaries are fighting alongside uh, neo-Nazi Ukrainians. Um, it seems like there might be a risk here also, though. I mean, you, you, I mean, trying to get Italy, but then, uh, you know, Russia had a decent relationship with Israel before. You know, they don't care at this point. I mean, all bets are off. And what we're seeing, especially in Italy, they know that there is an audience for them. They know that there is a real group of neo-Nazis who believe in these ideals, who believe that somehow Jewish lives or Jews, you know, Jews and Ukrainians are, are lesser of a human being. This is how all started, Drake. I mean, every genocide start with words, start with a propaganda of dehumanizing the other sides. I mean, you can see this writing on every museum, that, every Holocaust museum. And it didn't start with a killing. It started with words. And he's using Italy, specifically Italy, knowing that Mussolini yeah. used the exact same propaganda to, pa to pass the most anti-Semitic laws. And he's exploiting that the far right, who, who Putin co-opted and who's bankrolling, and by the way, the, mo the overwhelming majority of these parties of the far right are under investigation for corruption, right. Russian corruption. He knows that they are very popular, but also he's using the left. And this is the first time we've never seen anything like this. The left and the right agree that this is NATO war. So his, the idea that this is NATO, this is not about Ukraine, that Zelensky is a puppet of the West is becoming very successful. And that's, I think we need to fight back and we need to push back. Alternatively, we will find Putin puppet in Italy. So it's interesting that you raise that because the, today the former president of Brazil, uh, Lula, Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva, went after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky telling Time magazine, quote, I see the president of Ukraine speaking on television, being applauded, getting a standing ovation by all the European parliaments. This guy is as responsible as Putin for the war because in the war, 
there's not just one person guilty. And he goes on to say even more outrageous comments about Zelensky. Um, Is this an example of the way Putin creates ties with all sorts of governments, left, right, center, around the world? Absolutely. The left and the right. And he exploits both sides. And by the way, uh, Russia's warfare, disinformation, weaponizing information, conspiracy theory has been part of their policy for a long time. We're waking up to it now and we're not confronting it enough. I mean, if you look at social media in Italy, in France, in Germany, where the far right is at 42 percent, which means in one year when they vote for the European Parliament or for Italy, they might actually win. And you will find yourself, you know, with Zelensky and probably NATO will find themselves in another position. So what they are doing, they're buying all kind of ads to push that kind of narrative. What is Lula is saying is what you read on social media in Europe. Mm. And I think that's why we need to crack down on social media, because today they are the handmaiden to authoritarianism in Europe. We don't know who is buying these ads. We don't know if they are Russians, if they are Ukrainians, Mm -hmm. if they are Europeans. We don't know. But we know one thing. They are succeeding in turning the public opinion against the sanction and above all, depicting Ukrainians as irrelevant, not human, as Nazis. So playing with with a feeling that they are not really worthy to defend. Hmm. Rula Jibril, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Really appreciate it. Coming up, Donald Trump just passed a big test for the midterms. Thanks to Ohio voters. How long will his influence last? Then, new information about this onstage attack against Dave Chappelle. That's ahead. In our politics lead, Republicans are dissecting last night's results in the Ohio Senate primary. Now that it appears Trump's endorsement still carries considerable weight with at least a plurality of GOP voters. J.D. Vance, someone who once called Trump a demagogue and even privately compared him to Hitler, apologized, renounced his previous positions, pursued the endorsement of the former president, got it, and last night won. As CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports, even the former president is, quote, relieved by last night's results. I have absolutely got to thank the 45th, the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. The first big bet of the campaign season paid off for Donald Trump with J.D. Vance crediting a come-from-behind Ohio victory to his support from the former president. At a celebration last night in Cincinnati, Vance borrowed a page from the Trump playbook, blasting the media and his critics. They wanted to write a story that this campaign would be the death of Donald Trump's America First agenda. Ladies and gentlemen, it ain't the death of the America First agenda. In fact, it was a clear win for Trump with Vance earning 32% of the vote in a crowded primary to replace retiring Republican Senator Rob Portman. Two-thirds of Ohio GOP voters did not follow Trump's lead and chose other conservative candidates. Trump told friends he was relieved by the outcome, CNN has learned, in a race that once again showed he's still king and kingmaker of his party. But there are more tests of Trump's influence to come, including next week in West Virginia, where he's taken sides in a primary pitting two Republican congressmen against one another, and Nebraska, where he's weighed in on a heated three-way contest for governor. A bigger test comes May 17th in a pair of Senate races, one in North Carolina and another in Pennsylvania, where Trump-backed Mehmet Oz faces David McCormick in one of the nation's most closely watched primaries. And finally, May 24th in Georgia, a state Trump has been consumed with since he narrowly lost there in 2020. Ever since, he's taken aim at Governor Brian Kemp and persuaded former Senator David Perdue to mount a challenge against him. 
The endorsements have become the soundtrack of Republican campaigns. Ted Budd is an unrelenting champion for your North Carolina values. As Republicans fight to gain control of the House and Senate in November, the power of the MAGA movement is alive and well in the midterm elections. Trump is not on the ballot, but at the center of it all, with Vance now providing a roadmap other Republicans are clamoring to follow. We have to fight that battle with a unified Republican Party. And Jake, as we know well by now, the, the former president keeps close a tally on his win-loss record in terms of endorsing. So certainly last night was a win in Ohio, a big win. Without that endorsement, J.D. Vance will be the first to tell you he would not have won that primary. There are some more complicated races to come, but there's no doubt it is still the former president's party. He controls the base. The question, what does that mean for the general election? We have six months to figure that out. All right, Jeff Salini, thanks so much. Let's discuss. Uh, Kristen, let me start with you. So Ohio was the first major test of Trump's influence. There have been, we should point out, some other races since he left office, and he has a more mixed record when it comes to those. But major, major test in the 2022 midterms he passed. There's still more uh, than a half dozen races coming up uh, with Trump-endorsed candidates in Nebraska, in North Carolina, in Pennsylvania, in Idaho, and Georgia. Do you think all of them are going to be as successful as J.D. Vance? I don't know that all of them will be. I think certainly this is good news for President Trump if he wanted to disrupt this narrative that maybe his endorsements don't mean that much. Mm-hmm. J.D. Vance really does have to thank Donald Trump oh, yeah. for, for elevating him yeah. in that in that primary. But it doesn't mean that Dr. Oz is going to have an easy path to victory in Pennsylvania. It doesn't mean that Brian Kemp is suddenly in massive jeopardy in Georgia, that there are a lot of places where the president's Influence remains more limited. And frankly, you know, you can look at this glass half full if you're a Trump supporter and say, hey, he clearly got Vance to the front in that pack. But the other way to look at it is almost seven in 10 Ohio Republican primary voters did not listen right. to Donald Trump's endorsement. So, I mean, there's a way you can spin this to both say that Trump has a lot of influence and to say that his influence so, is limited. So he's good for 33 percent of the vote <laughs> in a state right. in, in which he did very well in Ohio. So in a crowded field, of course, that makes a large difference. But what will it be in a governor's race? Uh, for example, you know, you mentioned Kemp versus Purdue. His candidate, Purdue, is not doing too well in the polls right now. So I think it's glass half full, half empty. As you point out, you can you can analyze it any way you want it. He's going to face uh, Tim Ryan, uh, the House Democrat in the Senate race in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is saying uh, J.D. Vance says that Tim Ryan is trying to be a Trump Democrat. Uh, here's what Ryan had to say about that. Take a listen. I'm an American. Look, I agreed with Donald Trump on, on China, uh, on other uh, a few other issues. But, you know, and I've disagreed with Democrats on stuff, you know, obviously ran against Nancy Pelosi, got in fights with Bernie Sanders, disagreed with Obama on TPP. I think that's what the American people want. I'm representing the exhausted majority here. And the exhausted majority wants to stop the Washington, D.C. food fight. They want us to start working together. What do you think? I mean, I think he's doing what he needs to do to win in a state like Ohio. And he's not unlike a lot of vulnerable U.S. senators. Well, vulnerable candidates for U.S. Senate in swing states and states that you can't go too far to the left. And states where, you know, being perceived as too aligned with Nancy Pelosi might not win you the votes you need. So... Again, I think he's, like any other candidate, doing what he says he needs to do to connect with voters. It's still going to be difficult because Ohio is a state that right now is trending red. It's very red. It's a very red state. But we should point out 
The other senator in Ohio is Sherrod Brown, who's mm -hmm. one of the most progressive Democrats in the Senate. Right. And that's why I think, to your point, he is saying, um, Ryan is saying what he needs, what he needs to say in order to appeal to his voters. But I think one other thing that he can point out is the issue with J.D. Vance about how we were talking about it earlier. He used to be a commentator on this network. He was very anti-Trump. He talked about Trump as being cultural heroine. He talked about Trump as leading the white working class down a very dark path. And he is now doing that. And so I think we're at a point where Tim Ryan can point out the pernicious nature of people who are not just endorsed by Donald Trump, but that, who have left their values in the garbage to follow this man who has been so destructive to our country and our democracy. I, I do want to switch uh, just to talk about abortion for a section because of obviously that seismic story that Politico wrote yesterday, uh, where it looks as though the Supreme Court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade uh, altogether. Um, there are a lot of Democrats convinced that this will be a major motivator for progressive voters, for Democratic voters, for women voters who are who support abortion rights. So there's at least one Democrat who disagrees. Uh, let's take a listen to Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Inflation is the number one driving factor, I believe, in my state. Right now, it's hurting everybody, not just at the pump, but at the, uh, at the grocery store, at the drugstore, at the pharmaceutical, everything they do. There's so many other serious issues. Now, now, look, Manchin is not a supporter of abortion rights, right. but, do, do, I mean, is he wrong? I think we don't know yet. I don't want to be wishy-washy on this, but, <laughs> but I think that there are Democrats. I was talking to a Democratic pollster today, and he said to me, look, if the Democrats lean into what happened on abortion, if the Democrats lean into the so-called radical Republicans, and you've heard the president talk about that a lot now. You talked about it today, yeah. Yeah, then, uh, and privacy, this question of privacy. Um, he says, if the Democrats, this doesn't happen organically. Mm -hmm. yeah. If candidates decide that they're going to lean into it, they can really take advantage of this with voters, not just suburban women. Yeah. But if they don't, that's it. And Tia, here's Vice President Kamala Harris at an event last night for Emily's List. You were there uh, covering it. Uh, leaning into it, uh, as Gloria might say. Those Republican leaders who are trying to weaponize the use of the law against women, will we say, how dare they? How dare they tell a woman what she can do and cannot do with her own body? How dare they? How dare they try to stop her from determining her own future? We only have a minute left, and I want to get to all three of you, so <laughs> Yeah, I, I just want to say quickly that just because abortion may not be the number one issue that a woman might say she cares about most doesn't mean it can't drive turnout. Mm -hmm. It can't drive enthusiasm, and that's what Democrats know. That's what Absolutely. we saw in her speech. It's not just about number one. It's about what can get people to turn out and head to the polls. It's personal. And we're not just going to lean. These Democrats aren't just going to lean. They're tipping over on this because they know it's going to be a motivator. Polls have shown, they've asked the question, if Roe v. Wade is in danger of being overturned, are you more motivated to vote for Democrat? And the answer is, I think, either like two-thirds or three-fifths or some very high number. The answer is absolutely yes. And this goes for all demographics, women, men, Democrats, independents, Latinos, blacks, AAPI, so all across the board. What, what do the polls say? What do you think? I still think inflation is going to be the number one issue, but I think the asymmetric way in which this will motivate Democrats more than Republicans 
anger and frustration mm-hmm. is more motivational than, oh, hey, we got what our side wanted. And so I can see this being sort of asymmetric in terms of who is motivated by the decision that the Supreme Court Perhaps out. for the first time ever, because it usually works the other way around, right? right? It usually works that, that people who are motivated because they support abortion rights think, well, we have it, we're fine. Well, I like to think about this like in 2018 around Kavanaugh. There was a, the conventional wisdom was that that was going to tick off a lot of voters and progressives were going to benefit from it. But it also ticked off a lot of Republicans. Right. And so you saw this kind of both sides getting very frustrated. I don't know that that's the same dynamic in this case. Very interesting. To be continued, we'll talk more about this coming up because obviously the issue is not going away. They still actually have to <laughs> issue right. their opinion. <laughs> uh, coming up, there are the loved ones of Americans held hostage and detained around the world. What they want from the White House. That's next. In our buried lead stories we feel are not getting enough attention, Paul Whelan, Jorge Toledo, Aaron Barry, Matthew Heath, uh, these are just some of the names of the 55 Americans held hostage or wrongfully detained in other countries. Today their loved ones protested outside the White House. CNN's Kylie Atwood found out what the families say they want from President Biden. Outside the White House today, a clear call for help. Their loved ones are wrongfully detained abroad, and they want to meet with President Biden. It's so important that we we, we meet with the president. I call on the administration to meet with us all, to use every tool at their disposal, and reunite our families. Gathering to shine a spotlight on their shared struggle and to plead with the Biden administration to do everything in their power to secure the release of dozens of Americans. Their journeys have been long, painful, and all too similar. President Biden, you know more than anybody what it's like to to lose somebody that you love, to like never be able to hug them again. With all the memories that you could have created, like. You singularly know what that's like. Um, And there's so many really easy decisions that just aren't being brought to your desk that could end this nightmare for us. Alexandra Forces' father and uncle have been wrongfully detained in Venezuela for more than four years. We share a pattern of indecision from our administration to bring our family members home. We're running into the same roadblocks. It doesn't matter if it's Iran, Russia, China, Venezuela, it doesn't matter. We come back from our meetings in D.C. crying on planes. The uncle of Matthew Heath, wrongfully detained in Venezuela as well. I can't begin to express to you the pain that each and every one of us feel. Elizabeth Whelan's brother, Paul Whelan, was detained in Russia in 2018 on charges of espionage that he denies. For years, the Whelan family has been publicly advocating for his release. It's like entering a labyrinth where you have no idea how to get out, you don't know where your loved one is, you don't know who is going to help you or hurt you along the way. Earlier this year, WNBA star Brittany Griner was also held in Russia in what the State Department now calls a wrongful detention. Her arrest coming just months before Trevor Reed, another American who had been detained in the country, got to come home. It was the result of a prisoner swap last week. Uh, We hope that this is the catalyst for the president to start 
making deals if necessary to bring Americans home. Trevor is now in an isolation recovery program at a military hospital, but he wanted his father to be here today with the other families who have not yet been so lucky. The Reeds believe that their meeting with the president earlier this year was instrumental in getting Trevor home and the parents of Austin Tice, an American journalist kidnapped in Syria in 2012, said meeting with Biden this week gave them hope as well. I think progress was made just in getting to meet with the president. And, you know, it was we were astonished at how up-to-date he was on Austin's case and how committed he is to getting him home. Now, today, the State Department said that Secretary of State Tony Blinken has had conversations with these families of wrongfully detained Americans abroad, as recently as in the last few days. But, of course, what we will continue to ask, Jake, is if President Biden affords the rest of these families a meeting because they believe that that meeting could be a game changer. Hmm. All right. Kylie Atwood, thank you so much for that report. In our world lead now, President Biden is asking Congress today to provide tens of thousands of Afghan refugees with a pathway to become legal permanent residents of the United States. The ask was included in the Ukrainian aid request sent to Congress last week. If this were to pass, eligible Afghans, their spouses and children will have to successfully complete background checks to live in the U.S. And they'll have to do so for at least a year before they can apply for a green card. Today, former President George W. Bush and former First Lady Laura Bush met with 13 recent Afghan evacuees in Dallas. In a statement, the Bush Institute says that the 43rd president told the refugees, quote, we are disappointed that our nation abandoned Afghanistan. We want to send a message that all Americans must welcome Afghan refugees here as our neighbors and support them, unquote. The number is that some doctors may find concerning when it comes to the parents of young children. That's next. In our health lead, what appears to be rising indifference or at least ambivalence among parents about vaccinating their youngest children against COVID, a new Kaiser Family Foundation poll finds that only 18% of parents intend to get their children under five years old vaccinated as soon as possible once it's approved. 38% say they're going to wait and see. 11% say they're only going to do it if it's required. 27% say they definitely will not get their kids vaccinated. Let's discuss this. With public health physician Dr. Chris Parnell. Dr. Parnell, let's put those numbers up again. What do we make of both the low number of parents who will vaccinate their kids as soon as they can, which is only 18 percent, and the finding that more than a quarter of the parents surveyed, 27 percent, say they're not going to get their young kids vaccinated? Hi, Jake. Unfortunately, I'm not surprised by that polling data. If you recall, whenever we have a vaccine um, that is about to go through the EUA process for anyone in the pediatric age group, parents need information. And I think we need to do a better job in public health, especially our public health agencies and bodies of articulating the safety, the efficacy, and why it's important to vaccinate our kids. We've allowed the nation to go into uh, a laxity spirit, if you will. And that really is not productive if you want people to feel eager about using a prevention tool. Well, let me offer you the platform right now. What do you say to a parent who says, look, this thing doesn't hit kids as, 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 hardly, as, as harshly as it hits adults. The risk to my kid is really minuscule. What's the big deal? Why do I need to get another vaccine in my kid's arm? 
I say because you can't determine whether or not your child is the person who gets exposed and has no infection or your child is the person who gets exposed and has a severe infection. And we know that when those children do have severe infections or have that multi-inflammatory system reaction, we've seen that among the black and brown community. So if you know you couldn't predict that severity, why not do everything in your power to keep your child as safe as possible and finally, I'd say that your child is used to getting vaccines. You get vaccines for things that have less prevalence. And so this is actually a more informed and a wiser choice. Today, and for the first time since February, the CDC is predicting an increase in COVID hospitalizations and deaths over the next four weeks. Are we at the beginnings of a new surge? You know, Jake, it's always hard to pin down coronavirus, but I believe it is possible. Why is it possible? It's possible because we know that there is waning immunity. We know that across the four to fifth, six month time period that these vaccines do lose some of their effectiveness. And we know it's possible because people really have become fatigued with the idea of using multiple prevention tools, meaning masking in high risk situations, meaning um, not going to a, an event or an occasion that might not be the best decision. And finally, just not having access to rapid testing or rapid um, antivirals in the manner that would hold back this infection. I hope we don't see a surge, but I do believe all of the ingredients, unfortunately, are there. Dr. Chris Purnell, thank you as always. Good to see you again. We're now getting our first look at the weapon involved in the onstage attack against comedian Dave Chappelle. That's next. In our pop culture lead today, an incredible video showing the moment that comedian Dave Chappelle was so horrifically attacked by an armed man while performing in Los Angeles. The suspect were told is in custody. And as CNN Stephanie Elam reports, this is once again raising concern among performers about safety on stage. Comedian Dave Chappelle attacked on stage while performing at the Hollywood Bowl during the Netflix is a Joke Festival. Video taken just moments after the assault shows the alleged attacker being subdued as a shocked audience looks on. CNN's Rachel Crane was sitting near the front row. Out of nowhere, a gentleman jumps up from the audience and tackles Dave Chappelle. The thing that caught my eye immediately was that the gentleman was wearing a backpack. That's what got me scared. My mind immediately went to this man is wearing a bomb, but it felt very deliberate and it was quite scary. The LAPD says the suspect, a 23-year-old man, was armed with a knife made to look like a replica handgun. He was taken to a hospital for treatment and was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon. It all sort of happened so fast. I, I remember Dave Chappelle sort of stumbling back, uh, but the individual did fall to the ground and then got up and continued to run off stage. Any motive for the attack remains unknown. CNN has reached out to Netflix and the Hollywood Bowl for comment. In a statement to CNN, a representative for Chappelle said in part that the comedian refuses to allow last night's incident to overshadow the magic of this historic moment. A celebratory Chappelle returned to the stage alongside Jamie Foxx and Chris Rock, who used the moment to make light of his own recent onstage assault at the Academy Awards. Was that Will Smith? 
say Chappelle was not hurt, but the onstage attack of a superstar comedian, the second in just over a month, raises questions about security concerns and safety for performers. It felt like an eternity before the security got there and, you know, intervened. In actuality, I'm sure it was just a few seconds, but it was a very charged moment and everybody, there were gasps, screams, not crazy screams, but oh, like everyone was very alarmed uh, by what had just happened. And a representative for Dave Chappelle called the incident unsettling and unfortunate and says that the comedian is fully cooperating with the Los Angeles Police Department investigations. Jake? Stephanie Elam in Los Angeles, thank you so much. Dolly Parton's 9 to 5 schedule is paying off in one way. She says she did not want. Stick around. Uh, St. Dolly of Nashville. Looks like all that working has paid off again for Dolly Parton. She is among the new class of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees announced today. Parton had recently said publicly she did not want the recognition, but she later changed her mind saying that she would be honored. Here, 80s rocker Pat Benatar also made the cut. She and partner among six women in the 2022 class, the most ever in a single year. And Slim Shady will be standing up. Rapper Eminem will be inducted as well. This is his first year of eligibility having released his first album 25 years ago. Duran Duran honored also after nearly 45 years in the music biz and countless hits. Everyone you Sambolito said, come on, John. Lionel Richie has reason to party all night long. He's going into the Hall of Fame as a solo performer, having, of course, first risen to stardom with the Commodores. Other notable inductees include the Eurythmics, Carly Simon, Harry Belafonte, and Judas Priest. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead scene. And if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to the lead wherever you get your podcasts. All two hours just sitting right there. Our coverage continues now. With one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 